This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Are you left wanting more at the end of each episode of this show? Are these short sessions getting you fired up to try new skills for yourself and share the journey with others who are working through the same challenges? Well, the good news is that this podcast is only the beginning. The real action and learning is happening on the Regenerative Skills Discord channel, where you can connect with the whole community to dive deeper into the topics on the show, explore solutions, and share your journey and blooper reel with an active group that can't wait to hear from you. You can get your questions answered and share knowledge and wisdom of your own on a safe platform that, unlike the social media giants, won't steal your personal data to advertise to you in creepy ways. Ditch Facebook and join us where the real skill builders are. Just find the link to the Discord chat on the homepage at regenerativeskills.com. Hey everybody and welcome back. Now it's not often that I get to do interviews in person and it's not often that I get a chance to go to Italy to visit amazing farms and take a course on regional scale landscape hydrological restoration either. In fact, this was my first visit to Italy at all. And all of these fortunate circumstances came together at the end of November, just a couple of weeks ago, thanks to the incredible efforts and coordination by my friend Ed Cutler, who's the director of the Tuscan Environment Foundation. Now, early on, Ed invited me to come and assist on a four-day course that he was planning with Zach Weiss from Elemental Ecosystems and Lorenzo Costa from Las Cosesa Farm. And since I've been in Zach's Water Stories course since the beginning, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to go out and get my hands dirty with a few of my heroes while working on one of my biggest topics of passion. So today's interview is taking place up on Lorenzo's farm a day after the course wrapped up with incredible views of the mountain valleys and the vineyards around as the three of us discuss some of the most important learnings of that week. Much like the course itself, we zoom in and out throughout the discussion to explore the challenges and opportunities for water restoration work at a large scale and in smaller and more specific examples. Lorenzo gave us great information and context on the history of land use in the Tuscan area, as well as his own farm. Zach explained a lot of bigger picture concepts about working with water and the solutions for degraded landscapes and mismanaged infrastructure. We also refer regularly through the conversation to the farm that hosted the course of the previous days, Tenuta di Piganico, which I highly recommend that you check out. I'll put the link to their website and social media in the show notes. And despite the challenges that they have with soil erosion and some old water retention features that are no longer functioning, they're doing amazing work with forest management and grazing animals and silvopasture systems, among others. I also highly recommend stopping by their farm store and their restaurant if you ever find yourself near the town of Paganico. Now, I know this isn't a super detailed introduction to the interview, but trust me, everything is well spelled out from the personal introductions through the progress of the learnings from the course, and so I'm not worried that you'll fall behind. I'll also link to the previous episodes that I've recorded with Zach Weiss since he's been a regular on this show in previous seasons, so be sure to have a listen if this is your first time being introduced to him and his work. And with that out of the way, I'll hand things over now to Zach and Lorenzo. All right, well, this is super awkward now because we've been hanging out for like five days and it feels super formal, but... Um... Zach, you've been on the podcast a bunch of times before, so we're, I won't bother you with an intro. But Lorenzo, this is your first time, so why don't you start us off by telling us, first, first of all, because we're at your farm, where we are and what it is you do. Okay, um, we're in Gaiolin Chianti, near Siena, in Tuscany, in Italy. 
now, why you are at my farm, <laughs> that's something you may say. I don't know. I invited you. But anyway, here, this farm is a nine-hectare farm on uh, terraces and dry stone walls. We've got five kilometers of terraces. And it's 130 meters in difference in elevation. The farm is called Las Cochesa, which would mean in English steep, the steep one. And uh, yeah, so here we're trying to sort of grow food on a marginal abandoned land. It's 40 years that this land was abandoned. No one wants to grow food on terraces. You want big machinery and we don't have big machinery here. And yeah, we grow saffron, olives, uh, vegetables, herbs, a lot of uh, perennials that we found around, find around, you know, take the seeds here. And mostly that's what we do. We work on uh, water harvesting. So trying to recharge the whole aquifer of this hillside. And so, yeah, since uh, April 2018 that we're starting to work on this and it's building up. Fertility is changing, so I'm happy about it. Fantastic. I guess that's kind of the thing that brought us all together is exploring how we can restore the hydrological function of the whole area of Tuscany. And Zach, you came out here to lead that workshop. Lorenzo, you've been assisting on it. Um, it's where do we start with that? I mean, we covered so much. We were hosted by the wonderful farm at Tenura di Peganico. I think I, yeah. Um, but we've moved through a ton of material. Zach, why don't you talk about sort of the process from where we started and where we ended up? Yeah, I mean, really starting with looking, you know, kind of constantly zooming out and then zooming in. So zooming out to the global state of the water cycle the global state of water, what's happened over the last 10,000 years and also more intensively over the last hundred or couple hundred years, and then zooming in to the specific farm, the specific region, and walking the land, understanding what's unfolding on that landscape, how it's changing over time, and then what are good intervention points where we could make positive changes. Uh, we see here a region that's really suffering from drought, uh, also suffering from flood at different times and seeing longer and longer dry periods, less consistent rain, bigger rains when they happen. Uh, and so it's really causing issues for farmers around the region from crop failure, soil loss, uh, ecosystem function loss. And you see all these waterways that have just been beaten down, beaten to the sides, crammed into the smallest little areas. Um, so over the course of this four days, we really tried to help people understand big picture what's going on, what's happening in other places of the world as far as positive changes, and then how those changes would apply both to uh, the farm that hosted us and the Tuscan region as a whole. Yeah, and a lot of these bigger picture concepts and the physics of what is wrecking the water cycle around here you can see in so many other places around the world but you've been around in this area your entire life and have seen the specific challenges that Tuscany is is going through aside from poorly designed and managed roads and draining water bodies for agriculture and all these other common things that you see in other places what are some of the unique challenges that we found out about in Tuscany here well, for sure, the fact that we we have the two extremes, you know, we get floods and we get drought. And the big problem is there's not a 
sort of we haven't yet defined on a regional level a policy to you know do something between these two extremes so usually what happens here people get really you know frustrated when they lose crops with high temperatures drought then it sort of passes and they say oh you know they forget this is a usual thing you get these two extremes people don't do anything in the middle what we're getting is wells are starting to dry up so we're getting now uh, seawater that is coming in about 15 to 18 kilometers from the, on the coastline with, uh, with wells, and um, mostly it's that. Uh, then the big problem, I think, is really on the policy level, where, you know, they still think about the solutions that are, you know, let's just build lakes or reservoirs for, for, to irrigate plants or irrigate, you know, crops, and no one is speaking about the, you know, hydrological, uh, let's say, cycle, about the aquifers, about the watersheds. So they're looking a bit at the, you know, the end point of the whole thing and they're not starting from the top of it you know and they're missing a lot because Tuscany is interesting because it's got just two big rivers and it's got all these immense you know diversified and uh, watersheds that you know really cross the whole hillsides you get here and it's interesting because historically 75% of the agriculture was on hillsides it wasn't in the plains it wasn't in the floodplains and uh, then you know they started to dry out the floodplains because it was more fertile easy you could have big machinery. And, uh, I mean, just to think about it, we're on a terrace landscape, which seems sort of like crazy stuff today, and uh, nearly everything was grown on terrace landscapes in Tuscany, you know, and we've just lost them. And when you grow stuff here, you really see how you can really, you know, have a different um, possibility in growing food on a hillside instead of being in a floodplain. So I think, yeah, we're just looking at it from the wrong perspective. We're starting from the bottom instead of from the top, you know, mostly here in Tuscany. And you also have a really good grasp of how things have changed from the way they were historically, from the fact that there used to be wetlands all along the coast in this region of Italy and the different management methods over a very, very long time span that this area of the world has been inhabited. What have been some of the things that have accelerated the degradation in recent times? Well, for sure, the tilling, you know, using big machinery. And, uh, I mean, uh, there's research. We lose 27 tonnes of soil per hectare. At this point, I wouldn't even call it topsoil because I think if you lose it every year, <laughs> that was topsoil the first year. After 50 years, you're just losing something that we can call soil, you know. But imagine that on a hectare, you lose 27 tonnes in vineyards. And this is a region where we grow wine. We do grow grapes for wine. And we're in Chianti, which is famous for the Chianti wine, you know. And uh, the way they work the land, they go up and down with a tractor, even for, I, I get it, it's for, you know, you're more secure, you know, with a tractor, you don't risk to fall off, you know, because you're going up and down. We yeah. call it Ritokino. But that just is what is taking down the soil. So the biggest thing is how it's changed is machinery, losing soil, and uh, I'm mostly using, yeah, losing the water we have in the aquifers. So the water table is just going lower and lower. And um, I think that's the biggest thing. And we've lost something else, which is a lot of diversity. I mean, where we are now, it's just famous for wine. This, this uh, area was famous for apricots, mulberries, for cherries, uh, potatoes. No one is growing this. I mean, just to give the extension, we're in a municipality that is, let's say, the same square kilometers like Rome. And we're the only farm that's growing food. I mean, you know, it's sort of like 
you think it's crazy, you're in Italy, you imagine we're the only farm that is growing food to sell. A lot of people have, you know, family gardens, they grow food for themselves. But actually, you know, thinking about a, a farmer, a farm that is growing food to sell locally in a community, imagine you're on those, that extension, 2,000 people that live here, 88,000 tourists every year that pass here, pre-COVID numbers, and we're the only farm that's growing food. I mean, there would be space for other seven farms like us, like us, and we wouldn't, you know, probably not even touch each other, you know. There'd be space yeah, for everyone, you know. Yeah. That's really incredible. This is how you see how things have really changed and how we don't really know how our food systems function. You know? hmm. And so go back down into a smaller scale. We spent the term of this course at the farm that I mentioned, uh, Tenero de Paganico, and had the chance to walk through a small portion of a 1,500 he- uh, hectare, mostly cattle and pig and a couple other animals that they, that they breed there. It's a ranch, really. And, well, let's talk about some of the things that we observed and the unique circumstances of that place. Yeah, I mean, there they're having real severe issues with water, uh, where, you know, previously there were water bodies built throughout the landscape uh, that were used to give water, drinking water to the cattle. Uh, and now they actually are not able to graze most of the land in the summer because they don't have any water sources that still hold water. Um, now, it's from a variety of different reasons and practices, but one of the biggest things we saw is these fire breaks that are just continually cultivated, uh, that are put in you know, with no respect to the shape of the land, that are contributing a huge amount of erosion down into all the waterways, so the previous water bodies that were built, quite shallow, quite small, so very susceptible to evaporation to begin with, but then they've sedimented up to the point where they hold very little water, uh, and they only get water in the rains. That water is chocolate brown, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just sedimenting up year after year, and so most of those water bodies, we learned, are dry by May. Uh, so essentially the animals are back in the barns for the summer because there's no water sources in the grazing areas where they would otherwise be. Um, so huge loss of soil happening every year, washing into the water bodies, um, loss of the water bodies as a result. Then some of them they've tried to dig out and clean up and actually puncture the seal as a result of that. Um, but, you know, the biggest issue that we were seeing was just very simple soil erosion. Like Lorenzo mentioned, this region loses a tremendous amount of soil every winter. But that was leading to this whole cascade of issues where now they didn't have water sources. Now they don't have grazing land. And so very quickly, it's this very rapid atrophy of the land base, both from an ecological and an economic standpoint. Yeah, and for those who are not going to see a map, I'll try and post an image of it on the show notes. But when we're talking about these fire breaks, what are they, about 100 meters in width? And then they just crisscross the landscape as these massive gashes of deforested space that don't respect any of the contours of of the site. And they've been trying to make the most of it because by regulation, they have to keep trees out of it and prevent it from regrowing. by putting out pasture or cultivating crops on it, which, as we observed out there, most of it is very loose clay soil and can be one of the easiest ones or types of soil to mismanage. 
because if it is left exposed, it just falls apart really quickly and that's what's being eroded away in any kind of weather event, even if it's not that severe. Um, but let's talk about the roads too. The roads have been quite a source of erosion there. There's massive gullies going through them. Some of them are just simply planned poorly and are never gonna function very well and others need some intervention. They could still function well, but what are some ways that you can deal with difficult or poorly planned roads and keep them from becoming these points of erosion? Yeah, so the the roads are certainly a huge source of erosion as well. I mean, some areas along the roads, we're looking at two-meter-tall head cuts where it's just discharging a huge amount of sediment. Um, and then the roads are becoming very unfunctional as well, quite poor, difficult to drive. It's, you know, an off-roading experience to drive down the roads in many cases. Uh, so there were a number of areas where they just hadn't been maintained, um, they had the right kinds of diversion channels to get the water off the road that had sedimented over time, that hadn't been maintained, and so the water was starting to run down the road. As the water is collecting and concentrating on the road, the erosion just gets more and more intensive. Um, and then plenty of areas as well, the, the roads were not on a prominent feature, were not moving across the landscape, but rather moving up the landscape through lower areas. Um, or even more commonly, they've just been bulldozed smooth, but in that process, they've made the road a low point. So now the road is gathering all of the water, running down the road. Um, so a farm like this is just an incredible amount of management if it's not designed, or even if some elements are not well designed. Uh, so in this case, I really advocated for redesigning some of the road systems. Um, some of them were laid out okay and just need some more consistent management. Uh, some of them just need to be redesigned and put in different spaces along ridges or moving across the slope where they can hold up much better. Um, and then they really need to work on getting that water off the road, whether it's water bars, rolling dips, or different diversion structures. Cantilevering out in the center sometimes. Yeah, yeah getting, getting that road to be a proud, prominent feature so that the water's getting off of it, it's holding up much better, it's going to drive much better throughout the year, it's going to require less management over time, and it's also not going to lead to all this sedimentation and erosion in the waterways. Now we also took some time as a group to stand in one of these basins just above where a previous water body that's mostly silted up at this point is located and to assess it from your point of view and your experience as you walked us through how you might plan out a project like this. Now from here and certainly over audio we're not going to be able to really give a picture of what we were doing at that moment but maybe you can go back through some of the assessment processes uh, that help you determine whether a water body like that could really function and what might be done to make it function optimally. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is performing test slices. Um, in my opinion, any design that doesn't come along with many test slices throughout that landscape is really not worth anything. Mm -hmm. It's not even worth toilet paper, really, mm -hmm. at that point. Um, because, you know, even with all the research you can do beforehand, there's no substitute for actually digging the test slices into the ground, understanding the geological layers, how water is moving through that landscape. Um, and so in this situation, we're actually at the end of a long dry season. 
Now, it's rained enough, but not enough to charge up underground water sources. And in this particular area, just uphill of what is one of their dry during the summer water bodies, uh, we hit quite a good underground source of water. So essentially spring flow, an underground creek of water that's flowing through that valley that could be recharging a water body in that area even at the driest times of the year. Uh, and so it, in a way it's kind of insane that they have this dry water body in an area that should be, could be a massive year-round water body. Uh, that not only is it holding the seasonal surges, but it's actually actively recharging from the underground water supplies. Um, so we saw how by building it in a different way, by investigating it more thoroughly before building it, we could understand where those resources actually are and how they can be best utilized. Um, well, we actually did two test slices very close to each other in that area, and the other one did not turn up or did not tap into that underground stream, and it, it really illustrated the point to all of us, the necessity for doing these even in close proximity and how the geology can change significantly within a very narrow area and how relevant that is to the work that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times even 20 or 100 meters in a different direction, you're going to get very different results. Uh, and so like you described, we did one test slice in what we thought would be a good area, and we did another test slice up on the slope, and that would have been a totally impossible material to try and create a water body with. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why it's so important to understand the clay content, understand the composition, understand the layers and the different layers as you're moving down into the earth. Uh, because without this information, a design is just a guess at best at what you might encounter in creating a project. Um, a lot of times I think there's... Uh, people going out there designing the landscapes that don't know how to do the things on the landscape. And so even if they were to dig the test slices, they don't really know how to interpret the results. Um, and it's really important, especially if you're going to be providing recommendations, providing designs for people, that you actually have the knowledge to work with those materials uh, so that you understand whether a certain intervention is actually going to be helpful or not in that area. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And we also went over quite a few other smaller interventions that could be made before having to do a big investment of creating a water body, bringing heavy machinery out on to the land. I know we just talked about ways that we could potentially uh, fix some of the erosion gullies on things like the roads, perhaps even redesigning those. Those do represent a bigger investment for sure. But what were some of the smaller, more uh, I guess immediate things that they could try out in order to at least just start to improve the cycle or prevent its further degradation. Yeah, I mean, some of the things just involve doing less work yeah. along those fire breaks. They're cultivating and seeding pasture crops, um, but you know, they're cultivating on a fairly regular cycle, and that's leading to that erosion. And mm. that soil is becoming harder and harder to work. and less and less fertile for anything to grow. Uh, so just removing the tillage is one huge thing that could be done to benefit the place. And then I would even put that one step further to actually till one last time and then seed a many species perennial pasture, especially that these areas are pastures. You know, they're not growing crops in these. So they're creating this disturbance and losing the soil 
to then have a lower quality pasture than what they could achieve by actually establishing a mix of 10 to 20 different species within those pasture areas. Um, we saw one area where they had let it go to perennial pasture, mm-hmm. and that was the only water body that held water long. <laughs> it was the only water body that was relatively clear water, and you could see that it was actually a much more productive grazing area as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this was on their best soil, but they're continuing to turn their poor soils into even poorer soils, and so they really need to start moving in that opposite direction leaving the soil cover, building up the fertility. Um, There's also a number of different places where we saw good potential for beaver dam analogs and uh, things of that nature. But I think the first thing is stopping the the erosion where the raindrop is meeting the soil. Because until you're doing that, you're at best providing a Band-Aid for the landscape. For sure. Well, so many of the things that you just mentioned that we went over as possibilities are things that, Lorenzo, you're actively doing here on your farm. And you're on quite a steep slope. Yep. The geology is very different than down below where we were on the farm. Um, and yet so many of the same techniques are being applied in an appropriate way. I mean, you struggle to hold water in a water body uh, without it infiltrating pretty quickly within a matter of days or weeks at, at maximum here. What have been some of the interventions that you've done in the recent years and what have been some of the most successful things that you've found for, for this specific place? Well, let's say it all started from, we had a big problem of erosion. Yeah. We've got a, a road that cuts through our land where we're growing food stuff now, where we've got the vegetables, vegetable gardens. And so that's a fenced out two and a half hectare land. We've got this road that just, meanders in the woodland and we had a lot of erosion because we have five hectares of olives on top of us by our neighbor so our first thing was really trying to you know sort of discharge all the water from the road on the sides and uh, we had a sort of precise unique situation you have a high bedrock so you can't really dig you know deep so we really tried to see how the land would have you know um, favored, favored certain infiltration basins and we just started you know from the top going down and at this point on the actual road we're about we've got eight infiltration basins we don't have erosion anymore and uh, <coughs> the basins collect silt they even have they function let's say like infiltration basins and like sediment traps mm, that sediment can be used for the nursery for plants and uh, we've kept on you know infiltrating water since april 2018 now we are 4,600,000 liters and um, have we seen significant change on the you know on the aquifer no not evident but i'm sure there is mm-hmm. because you know you, you're just infiltrating in in a soil that was just receiving all that water would just run off because of a steep slope and instead all this water is you know is divided up and is getting into the woodland it will probably take maybe three years, four years to actually see some change. But I'm convinced that we can see a really significant, you know, response from, from the trees, from fat, from the fertility, from the microbiology. Yeah. And uh, from there, we just started going on. We just have these little, you know, I don't know how you would call them, uh, ditches that cross the road that just take water out. Like water bars. Yeah, water bars. And then we've got other ba- infiltration basins on the sides of this land, and we're just trying to make the maximum of every single drop of rain we get on the land, you know. And uh, 
this has actually been very useful me for me to learn you know yeah. i mean you just start on the ground small things we went building up our knowledge and our skills me and daniela that works with me here you know and uh, you know you can do mistakes on your land so you just try to learn things and uh, we've actually noticed how how things actually change even in time you do maybe a dam you do a small water body and you see how the soil assesses in time how it just maybe you know changes even the height of the dam you've done you know? and that's really a good learning curve you get from just doing things on the ground and now just got other four hectares to play with you know? so we'll just keep on going down but i think it's really interesting and what usually happens is people you know read these things in theory and they never get the chance you know start to practice these things and uh, not necessary to have you know the big gigantic solutions you know you can learn from those but if you want to actually put them in practice on your land you can just do real small things and they teach you a lot you know yeah and uh, obviously if you want to scale up you have to then do other sort of you know experiences even with the help of people that professionals that know that stuff but i think yeah what is missing here and there's very many little projects here in tuscany that do this stuff you know in in sort of even in just small solutions people just keep on you know uh, speaking about the fact that water oh we get big storms or we get a lot of drought and then you just say why don't you try and do this oh but you know they they sort of get out of that you know they just want to just sort of uh always just speak about problems they don't want to do the solutions you know so but we're trying to you know keep on being like a sort of local example and that's cool because i mean we see it's 5 years now and local farms even wineries they always come and visit they're sort of curious you know and i think that's the best example we can sort of hand out you know so i'm not going to tell anyone you're doing that thing that's wrong i just usually say just come out see the farm see what we're doing you know try to understand what the concept is and then we'll see if it can function on your farm but it's difficult thing it's a slow process if you want and we don't have time really you know mm. so it's we have to sort of find the right balance in that but yeah but i think yes it's it's functioning really well we're mostly just doing infiltration basins at this moment on the farm because we yeah we don't have the soil we don't have the layers i mean and and the high bedrock is really something that you have to you know keep in count here Yeah, that's a challenge. And so in order to scale it up in this region, this is almost more of a community and a and a population education effort than it is, you know, going around and doing engineering or or landscape interventions. Or at least it seems like that would be an earlier step in order to get towards that other point. Yeah. Where have you seen opportunities for this uh, in in this part of Italy? Uh well, there's interesting opportunities when you speak with farmers. and uh, usually i must say i think what would be a small farm maybe in the united states you know i mean 9 hectares here my farm but it's you know smallish medium sort of we don't have big big farms i think the medium sized farms are more interested they have more a grasp on what the the function of an ecosystem is they try to really think about certain things even smaller wineries and one thing i'm noticing even is, is even the interest of universities here in tuscany we're starting to collaborate with the university of florence is they teach water harvesting. When they come out here, they say, "Wow, this is what we teach and we finally see it." And you sort of think, "Mm, that's strange, you know. What what do you mean? It was all theoretical." And yeah, that's it, you know. But they're sort of really interested, you know, to come and see our farm, to come and understand. And I think that will just 
you know, sort of be sort of exponential thing to build it up so you get more interest because they actually have the possibility, you know, to make it louder, to make it, to bring it out to the people. One thing I've, I've actually focused on here is the local community. It's, it's a community that is still quite, you know, we're quite, you know, close to each other. We help out each other. And um, the big excavator guy here in my municipality uh, was incredible after four years. He comes out here to do the big things. He did the road we have, you know, on farm, the new road we built. And after four years, he just looked at me one day and said, you know, you're doing something really exceptional here. Nobody does this stuff here. Mm. And when you get one of those guys like that, that they just used to get on a bulldoze, you know, and bulldoze a whole landscape, right. that's what they do to do vineyards, you know. You think, well, wow, you know, I think something is getting to these people. You know, the seed has been, you know, sort of uh, sowed in, in their minds, inside them, you know, and that's really interesting. And that's something I've had a lot of feedback on, is people that come here that are locals, and they sort of look at you like a strange guy with a long beard and then they, after four or five years they sort of come back and say, hey, you know, though, you're actually doing something that's really interesting because nobody's growing food on terraces, you know. And these terraces are an incredible legacy with the past. Terraces really define the, the culture here, you know. And they see you do it, they think you're crazy, but then they sort of think, wow, I mean, my grand-grandfather would grow food here, you know. And that's something that I think really... Uh, just went into their sort of, you know, something they have inside culturally and they sort of thought, wow, you know, and, and you're not from here, you know, I'm from Piedmont. So they really feel this thing and say, hey, why did a person not from here come and teach us what we really knew, you know? I think it's going to be a process, but it's going to catch up, you know, very, fairly quickly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Zach, you've also, in so many different places around the world, uh, worked with local people, but also probably butted heads a lot with regulations and other things that can prevent good work from being done. Have you found any solutions or strategies for working within those difficult, invisible structures in order to make positive progress? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it all comes down to actually creating real impacts on the ground. People don't believe in what you say. They don't believe in what they hear, they believe in what they see. Uh, and so a lot of times we actually need to actively break or dance around some of these regulations in the way to show the examples, to show the reason why those regulations should change. Because they're never going to change if there's no examples of why they should change. Um, so here we learned, you know, they basically come along and clear all of the vegetation along all of the riparian areas. And in fact, the taxpayers pay for it. Mm -hmm. And so it's leading to immense amounts of erosion along the waterways, heating up of the waterways, loss of oxygen, loss of life within the water. Uh, so this is this incredibly destructive thing that's being done from a regulatory standpoint that is actually funded by taxpayers and that landowners have no ability to stop. Mm -hmm. They come onto your land, you're paying them to destroy your land, and you can't do anything against it. Uh, so, you know, regulations always change retroactively. They always change as people change, as public sentiment changes, and only then do regulations change. Um, so we're really at this time where people need to have the civil courage to do what's right by their landscape, to do what's right for nature, to follow the laws of nature instead of the laws of man. Um, 
And that's unfortunately the only way things are going to change. Um, now, there's also all sorts of ways that uh, we can find appropriate connections within regulatory agencies, call projects by a different name. Uh, you know, a pond can be an erosion mitigation structure, and oftentimes that's going to be much more favorably looked upon. Um, so there are all these different ways we can navigate it, but ultimately it all comes down to having real examples on the ground. You know, like you've created here, that equipment operator that's so used to bulldozing the hillside, he's seeing what you're doing and he can even recognize how incredible it is. And that's going to slowly start to spread. And as he's working for other people, he might start saying, well, have you thought about doing things this way? Right. Cause, and so just s disseminating, I mean, it's happening slowly, but it needs to happen more quickly. Uh, but also as the situation becomes more dire, there's more incentive for people to change. Absolutely. So as people's crops are failing, as their wells are going dry, they're going to start more and more seeing the value of water harvesting, of aquifer recharge. Um, it's a lot easier to fix before it gets very broken. So hopefully we can help lead people towards that paradigm shift more quickly. Uh, but ultimately, that's how it changes by a paradigm shift within the community. Before we go on to the, what I see as the logical next step for that is talking about the potential of you know, what we could see and the way we could live. I also kind of want to go back and explore some other aspects of what's going on in this landscape that we've talked a little bit about, but begs going into detail, and that's forestry management. Uh, this area I see as being quite fortunate in the fact that there is still a lot of forest cover and there is protections around forest management in general. But Lorenzo, maybe you can talk about the two forestry kind of harvesting schemes that exist around here and how that's incentivized some not so ideal practices. No, yeah. So we've got a uh, bosco cedro, which is when you cut wood for just, let's say, for heating your homes, you know, and they cut that with cycles, I think, of every 20 years. And they usually cut plots that are one hectare. And uh, they have to leave every 10 meters, I think, a small tree, you know, like a cedar that they actually leave, at, like happens in the United States, we were speaking about the other day, you know. They just leave the, the most smallest, you know, tree because they want to take the big tree out because they want to sell it because that's more weight. So what you see, <coughs> we're on audio, but I mean, just behind here, they just cut, uh, you know, three hectares two years ago. And you still look at it and people sometimes ask, especially with people, people that come from abroad, was there a fire there, you know? It seems like there's yeah. been a fire. And uh, that's the usual thing you get here. And the law here is a bit very strange because um, you actually, big firms want to get at the fine, want to get a fine, so they do something that's wrong because they can give only one fine for every concession they get from the province, from the regional level. So, and they just pay the fine, you know, 8,000 euros, and they just keep on cutting. And obviously, this is something that is, for big firms, no problem. The small firms, usually, that's what they may earn from cutting a piece of woodland, you know. So they're very... In fact, you get the small firms are much more, you know, precise. They look at certain things. They they try to really... And they're mostly locals. The big firms just come from outside, dig, you know, cut and go away. The second one is the Alta Fustaya. You usually don't cut it. You cut it on cycles, longer cycles. You thin out the woodland. 
because that usually is wood that they use for furniture building or they would use for furniture building if you don't have local artisan artisans that build furniture anymore so they're actually even taking that and they would just try you know make it into energy they do wood chips of that which is really absurd and this just leaves forests in a poor really managed way i mean you see there's uh, the undergrowth changes completely and one thing that really usually makes me go crazy is they cut i mean what zach said before you know they cut the riparian you know areas around rivers around you know flowing rivers but what we've got we've got so many seasonal creeks we've got even small creeks that flow in the woodlands and they just cut down the trees around these bodies you know water and that just really changes the whole water table uh, depth it dries up these creeks usually even if they flowed all year we saw one just 5 kilometers from here you know it was a real small creek it would flow the whole year now it just stopped you know they they completely you know pulled out all the trees on the catchment area but especially along even the the course of the creek you know exposing that to sun is just something that really i mean changes completely how the ecosystem works how that water body works and uh, this is something that is really incredible in this area and uh, problem is that we get you know funding to research that sort of backs up this way of dealing with woodlands so it's not really changing but we're on track to sort of you know try to <clears throat> work on that on a regional level different people that are trying to work on this you know to sort of make it clear uh i managed to stop a woodland behind me just uh, close to me neighboring woodland they wanted to cut it down i think if they ever go to cut that down i'll probably you know tie me up on a on a tree to sort of stop i mean i'll really then at that point sort of go crazy because it's an incredible ecosystem there and i think it's just one thing that at a certain point we can try to speak with you know with the agencies we can when you see something like that happen i think we're at the point where you sort of just have to act in some way you know and take action and try to make people really understand what's happening you know so yeah i think you could probably see me one day chained at a tree on a, a 200 year oak that. tree you know i hope to but i mean i think that would happen because i, I mean really they've cut down incredible woodlands here in chanti which fortunately still has a lot of forest you're right i mean you know really a, a lot of hectares of woodland forest you know really nice but they really don't get it you know for them it's just seeing money and i'm really you know so sort of, i really get angry because i mean oaks are even just a source of food you know let's yeah. just do acorn flower i think they would earn more from acorn flower than from cutting the woods you know don't cut the woodland you know harvest the acorns you know so we're even doing that and that someone i think seems to be a few wineries have asked me what are you doing with the acorns flower oh can we come and see how you do it i said want to get into this get into it you know you'll probably just start growing oaks and stop with with vineyards you know that would be really fantastic and we won't, you won't cut down forests anymore because you've got all food here you know that would be much better yeah and you can start to select carefully for the ones that you want to favor and start to influence the configuration of how they develop and such i got to say zack one of the things that i've learned in the reading of the landscape that we've done together is what to look out for for identifying the health of a forest because you could look at it from a distance and you see like we do here quite a dense cover of quite a few different species and from a distance it can look quite healthy or at least to what we have reference to as health what are some of the indications that you go looking for in a forest to understand 
its state of health and what kind of trajectory it's on? Yeah, it's really hard to really look at forests honestly because most of us have never seen real forests. We've seen tree farms, essentially. And tree farms are usually clear-cut at one point. Then they grow back all as the same age stand. They're very tight. They reach very far. Now, this is desirable for the longest stick of timber that you can get, um, but it's not natural. And so what you'll have happen is nature will start fixing that scenario. There will be lots of disease, lots of pests, trying to kill off a good bit of that forest to then develop a more natural forest succession. Uh, where there's actually many different ages of trees. There's very old trees, very young trees, and everything in between. So and we see forests like we see a lot in this region where it's all the same age. That's not a natural forest. That's a field of corn, but the corn is trees instead of corn. Um, and, you know, it's really easy for people to connect the forest with water after they lose the forest. After they cut the forest and all the water source goes, sources go dry, they realize, oh, maybe those two were connected. Uh, but you can't just put the forest back. That takes years and years to regrow. And so it's really important that we start to understand that. And then also from, from Europe, I've heard this really interesting story of a, a father talking with his son. And uh, he's talking about the time of the war. And during the time of the war, the people went to the forest for refuge. That's where they got food. That's where they got firewood to keep warm. That's where they got the material they needed. And he was looking across this valley, and that forest had all been cleared and turned into a housing development. And so he was asking his son, when the next war comes, where are the next generations going to go for refuge? We're taking all of that space away. Uh, and so it's really important that we start to value forests for the many different yields that they provide, and we can tend forests and use forests in a way that actually increases the health of the forest. Now, it takes a little more care, a little more nuance, and it's not as lucrative from a timber standpoint. Uh, but you look at, like, the farm where we were, they're getting paid an embarrassingly small amount of money for the trees that are coming in and being cut. Um, they're cutting the trees, they're chipping all the limbs and the branches, and they're hauling all of that away. So you have these trees working very hard to improve the soil conditions, creating all this biomass that's going to be food for fungi, going to help protect the soil, but they're just constantly taking that away from the landscape, either burning it on site or even hauling it away, and you're just extracting fertility from your landscape with a system like that. Uh, so it's really important that we start to develop more natural forests that have a lot of different ages, a lot of different species, um, that aren't these monocultures, both of species and of age range, because when you have that, you have it all existing in the same soil horizon, using the same nutrients at the same time of year, and so it's all in competition, and so you get stress, you get disease, and you get these really unhealthy forests that we see today. But because we haven't known healthy forests, we look at it as a healthy, beautiful <laughs> ecosystem because we don't know what the healthy one actually looks like. Yeah, it's really common in this uh, baseline reset syndrome is often what it's called, right? Every new generation has their own reference to what they see as a healthy ecosystem. And at this point, pretty much no one alive has seen what the potential of health and 
ecological abundance, capacity for life could even be. And it's severely limiting when we talk about restoration work or regeneration. It's like, well, what reference are you aiming for? And it can't only be either uh, an idea of the past that we have to go back to, but rather it, it, it takes a lot of creativity and imagination, which many of us lack, to see a path forward towards the real potential of a piece of land. Um, I'm wondering from both your sides, maybe starting with Lorenzo, how do you see that here on this farm? And how has that evolved as you've started to get the feedback through the observations of the things that you've done in these last handful of years? Um, I see the potential really unfolding. What, I re- what I've really learned, I'm not a farmer. I didn't study agriculture, I studied contemporary history, you know, so I just decided to get into this. And uh, I really learned a lot by observing this ecosystem, this land. And what I've just seen is really, you just set certain connections and then it just grows by itself. But it's not like you don't do anything anymore. It's not this sort of, you know, romantic thing, you don't do anything. No, you have to work hard. But you, when you're part of the ecosystem, the feedback you get is just this exponential, you know, uh, it's like it takes off, you know, just really takes off. And that, at that point, you just keep observing and you just, maybe you're just a little tweaking, you know, you just sort of do some interventions. And mostly the things you have to do are, are on the animal vegetables that you actually seed every year, you know. So it's always our fault if you want to put it that way, you know. Because, I mean, it's just maybe, obviously the climate is changing, you know, you have to maybe seed before or transplant later because it's too hot. The actual what you see is that soil is just, you know, giving you the, the, the feedback really clearly. And we've seen it in how insects have changed, the populations have changed. And at this point, I'm not worried when I see maybe, you know, aphids come in. And I don't, I think, oh, I don't have the ladybirds, you know. Uh, ladybirds? Yeah. Yep, yep. And uh, I think, oh, I don't, it's just because maybe it's just too early. Two weeks in and they come and you get the aphids, they've gone, you know. We're always there that we want to react you know, immediately, I've just learned that, you know, it's just uh, giving the time to the ecosystem to readapt, readapt, and then, you know, I was saying before, I mean, we've got snakes here, but we've got an eagle that keeps that population of snakes in check, but then we've got mice, and the snakes eat the mice, you know, and you just have to let them all go, you know, and they sort of find that balance. I really learned this, and it's been an incredible, you know, lesson that i've learned here because it just even gives you another vision on society Mm -hmm. Uh, you know sort of mm, listening one thing that we don't do because observing nature is like listening to people when they speak you know and we're not used to listen and uh you know it's it's really about uh learning every time that lesson and taking the step forward you know and uh, looking how things change and i mean it just unfolds in front of you you know and you really learn so much. And on the water side, I've just learned so much here because, I mean, I love it. It will seem strange. I don't really love drought, but I love drought because it tells you so much more mm. you know, about a landscape than when you've got abundance of water. You really can read certain things when it's dry and it's high temperatures, you know, because that's, that's really when you get the scarcity, you know. You don't, you don't get that resource. And one thing I think, the problem we have today is that many things, we don't have the necessity. Only few people feel the necessity to act in certain ways, you know. 
and as we've been saying these days, even now, you know, probably the times will come that it will just unfold so quickly that people will have to react immediately. So one other potential that I, I like of this place is that I think this place, I see it as a place that will be here in the moment people will want to learn and they can come here, you know. Like if the local community will be able to come here, just, you know, see the example and have a quick sort of, you know, really fast-forward lesson that they can learn from, you know, and that will really help. So that's what I see here, you know, that's what I've really learned from this place. That's beautiful. And Zach, you've made a career out of going to clients' land and not only seeing but actually helping to bring about the potential there especially focused around water why first of all did you focus on water as a way to do this and how do you go about to assess those types of things yeah so i mean for me the reason i started really focusing on water is because of the results it provides uh, my focus was not at all on water it was on ecosystems it was on plants it was on soil uh, but as I started working with SEP, I started seeing that 70% of the work is in the water. And if you get the water household dealt with, 70% of the work is already done. And now you're going to have rich, abundant vegetation. You're going to have, have healthy ecology. Uh, and if you don't get that water piece right, you're just going to be working and working and working and never achieving any real results. Uh, so that's why I'm so heavily focused on water is it's, in my opinion, and from what I've experienced and seen, it's the number one thing that delivers results. If you really steward the water on your landscape, you're going to steward abundance on your landscape. You think life is 70% water by volume. It's actually more than 99% water molecularly. And so all life is water living uh, and the more water we have on a site, the more productivity we're going to have on that site. It's really the ultimate capital, the most important capital for any farmer uh, or any human being or living being on this planet, really. And so in moving forward after this course, uh, what are some things that those of us who participated, we would recommend perhaps get started with uh, those of us who have land, those of us who don't have land, and also for people in general, um, regardless of the resources that they're working with, to participate in the restoration of the hydrology of their landscapes and also in the changing of the mindset that's required to do this at a larger scale. Yeah, I mean, I think becoming aware is the biggest piece, uh, becoming aware as an individual and then helping spread that awareness, understanding that so many of the issues that we face are our own doing. Uh, we all love to place the blame on someone else. It's like a ubiquitous pastime to complain about the government, uh, no matter where you are. But really, these issues are not from anyone else. They're from previous management decisions made on that landscape. So recognizing that, understanding how we've all participated in that is the first step to being able to change it. Um, then a big piece is just actually going out on the landscape, reading the land at the driest times, at the wettest times, going out during the rains, seeing what's unfolding, and then starting to find the ways that you can really make some change. Not just think about it, but actually do it. Do a small project. Get the water off of the road into an infiltration basin. Build a water body. Build a rain garden. 
do some small project that is then going to lead to your next project. It's going to result in some success and some failure, and you're going to learn from the failure, and you're going to get better and better at doing it. No one starts out as an expert, and no one starts out doing everything correctly. I still make mistakes all over the place, and so it's this constant process of learning, observing, and improving what we're doing. Um, and these are the really simple things that we all can do that if we all start doing them, it's going to make a huge difference very quickly. Man, if only there was some kind of, I don't know, community or like online course where people could learn about this stuff and maybe share, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> so How's I mean, that for setting you up? <laughs> and so, I mean, this is really why we created Water Stories, a community of people who really care about water, care about land. Uh, we have all sorts of films, short videos. We have a course. It's all geared towards giving people the information they need to be advocates, to be land stewards, to be professionals in this field, uh, so that there's not just one of me going around and helping places, but there's actually thousands or even millions of people that are doing this kind of work, whether they're doing it as a passion, whether they're doing it on their own land, or whether they're doing it as a professional, earning their living. Um, and so this is certainly... You know, I think we have a lot of great resources to help people understand the healthy water cycle, the broken water cycle, and everything in between. And then we're really highlighting the different examples and heroes around the world where the work has already been done. It's not existing in theory, it's existing in practice. And you can see the results from bringing water back to a quarter of a million wells, to reviving rivers, to lowering temperature to creating rich, abundant oases and desert, all of these things are proven already. It's not that we need to wait for some technological fix to engineer our way out of these crises. We just need to start implementing what's already been shown to work. Yeah, well said. And Myself and Lorenzo are both in that community and have really enjoyed the course, and I'm looking forward to finishing it when I find time to do all the homework. Uh, but Lorenzo, what about here specifically? As we talked about some of the unique challenges and, you know, even the culture and the mindset of many of the people of this area, which is, you know, that part's similar to a lot of other places around the world. But what have you found as a good entry path to introducing the topic and the importance of working with water, as well as some of the practical things that have been effective? Well, as an entry path, I think uh, to speak about water here, I think the first thing for me was on my side to study the history of this landscape. That's, I think, something that has been central. I mean, I always, when I speak about water in Italy, maybe teaching some workshops, you know, here in Italy, I always say, study the history of a landscape, of a territory. I mean, because it doesn't mean that everything that was done traditionally was great, but they sure knew how to read landscape. They knew that stuff, you know, really well. And uh, so my entry point here was really to study the history, you know. And terrace landscapes can sort of, the history is in front of you. You, know, you actually see them, so you can't, you know, miss out on certain things. But the other thing I think here is mostly, I've seen the difference when people come and visit this place. Uh, it can be a chef from a restaurant. It can be a person who wants to buy, you know, vegetables. It usually is a person that is maybe passing by with a mountain bike, you know, on the path we have here. They sort of look and say, hey, what are you doing, you know? I mean, these two photographers, they, they, they do bicycle races you know they're two american guys 
And they just passing by, they asked me, hey, what are you doing? You know, start speaking. They ended up, they were here for two hours, you know, walking around the land and so sort of saying, wow, you know, wow, I've never seen something like this, you know. And then you start speaking about Zach's work, about water stories. And that really helped me to stitch together, I think, many things, you know, because I've, I've been on the practical side reading a lot of books. But then it sort of helped me to, you know, put everything in place, maybe, and to create the network. I think it's, uh, it's like going up and down on a local basis to an, let's say, international, you know, uh, network. You have to put them together because that really accelerates, you know. I think what we need now is to have local projects, small projects that can function as an example, that are sort of like a catalyzer, you know, they, they, they take people together. And then you have to have the big, the hero, the story that, you know, that really has the impact. But it's just like, you know, seeing really the balance between the real small impact and the big impact. Because the water cycle, you know, as the big water cycle, the small water cycle, but it's all interlinked. And that really, I think, is something that online communities can really, you know, help to sort of accelerate. Because maybe in your place, in your farm, on your land, you don't have anyone around and you don't feel, you know, you're capable. Then you get that online community that can just share, you know, that story, that video, that, I don't know, photograph, you know. And it's just about exchanging messages, you know. Hey, how did you do that thing? Yeah. How did you find that solution? And you really find out that there's so many people that, I mean, that live on bedrock, like me, you know, farm on bedrock. I mean, not that we're unique, you know. So that's really, I think, that's an, uh, another thing I'd really like, you know, about, about all this, how you work, and how really it seems quite normal to say or quite evident, you know. Water really brings things together, it connects. And even when you want to connect people, you start speaking about water. It's something that people start to really feel, you know, the mm-hmm. problem. And but the problem I think is a lot that I really try to get over that is that we list all the problems, you know, rivers drying up, wells drying up, the drought, and I'm getting sick and tired of those. Say, let's start speaking about solutions. Let's start speaking about the people that do the things, you know. Because otherwise, it's just you sort of, you know, you sort of get into a sort of depressed, you know, part of your life, you know. So let's really start, you know, sharing the stories. And what I think Water Stories has helped many of us, I think speaking with other people that are doing the courses, I mean, Zach highlighted, you know, the, the big impact stories, you know, the big, the heroes, as you've called them, you know. But it makes you even feel you have an impact on a local level, like, say, like a sort of, you know, you're the sort of little hero of that territory. You, know? yeah. you feel empowered, you know, and you feel even, I think, bolder to sort of come out, you know, to share your story, you know, locally. And to say, hey, come and see this, you know. You don't feel you're not, you're not doing something just because it's not, you know, the big thing. It doesn't have, has, still hasn't had that great impact, you know. Because it's not a matter of, of scale, I think. It's really a matter of having everyone doing it on different levels, you know, and in different regions of the world, you know. So I think that's really something that I find incredible, you know, about this. And water, yeah, I mean, just, that's the starting point. You know. Start from there and it really has an impact.
And this kind of feels like it's a starting point too, even though we've all done different types of work ecologically for quite a while. Um, it seems like a new beginning and that there's a ton of new collaborations and opportunities moving forward. Goodness knows I'd love to continue to collaborate with you, Zach, and see you out here in Europe again. Same with you, Lorenzo. Certainly if you guys are able to come and visit me on my new site and give me some input and, and ideas about how to make that into as beautiful a place as possible. I mean, this is really starting to take off and we're, I think just at the cusp of a real real turning point uh, in the way that land is managed and the way that communities value these resources. So it, it's exciting and I really appreciate both of you coming out here, taking the time. I've learned a lot through the last few days. Yeah, thank you. Thanks once again to Lorenzo Costa and Zach Weiss. I'll be posting all of the links to their businesses, the Water Stories course, and their social media handles on the show notes for this episode, where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Well, that's it for our show this week. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so that you never miss an episode. And until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future. And I'll be right by your side along the way.